So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the Hunterian Museum Events Programme. Uh, my name's Hayley, I'm the Learning Officer here at the Museum, and I'd like to welcome you again to the last of our programmed lunchtime lectures for this season, but never fear, I'm already programming the next season from Ju July to December, so there will be more, I assure you. We are very lucky in the Hunterian to be members of several excellent organisations, one of which is the London Museums of Health and Medicine, a group made up of 30 of London's museums that, whose collections relate to health and medicine. And of these, the Royal College of Physicians are one of our favourites, given they're here today. Um, so I'd like to welcome Beth Wilkie, who's currently the curator of the Royal College of Physicians collections, managing a nationally significant, significant art and medical collection. And also with her, Peter Basham, who is currently the collections officer, but is soon to go and join the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists as their curator. So moving on to one of our brethren. And we're very pleased to have them here to talk about a past exhibition and the many fascinating aspects of this. So thank you very much. Thank you, Hayley. Um, my name is uh, Beth, and this is uh, my colleague Peter. Um, and as Hayley said, we are from the Royal College of Physicians, um, which I'll refer to in this talk as RCP, just because it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and we're here to share some hidden histories from our museum collections with you today. This is our building, uh, for those of you who haven't been to visit us yet, um, but we are open to the public, so please do if you haven't already. Um, we're in a grade one listed uh, modernist building uh, just off Regent's Park, um, and in it we've crammed about 500 years of history. Um, we've built up these collections since our foundation in 1518. Uh, we've got a wonderful fine and decorative art collection and also uh, a spine-tingling assortment of uh, medical and surgical artefacts and instruments, um, although perhaps not as spine-tingling as some of the ones in the, uh, the Hunterian Museum here. Now, our collections are the product of centuries of gift-giving by fellows and also purchases. Um, and works from these collections are displayed and used today in our headquarters at Regent's Park. But we also hold a substantial uh, but little-known archive of prints and drawings. And this collection contains over 5,000 portraits of scientists and medical uh, personalities, with representations ranging from Hippocrates and Aristotle right up to 20th century practitioners. Now, the print collection remained uh, largely unexamined until 2005, when museum staff and volunteers began to recatalogue it. In 2007, an element of this uh, collection, a small group of distinct prints, came to light, and they were essentially a lost group of 17th to 19th century portraits of faces and bodies, not of doctors, as are most of the 5,000 prints, but of disabled people men and women of all ages and walks of life and different professions. And we don't know actually when the collection came to us. We imagine it probably came in not as one large distinct group, but as a small number slipped into larger collections that our fellows had gathered during the years and uh, donated to us over the centuries. Um, we found that they hadn't been researched and displayed at all. As I say, they were just found by a volunteer who was improving the cataloging. 
and we decided that more needed to be done with them. So we gathered them together, and a lot of research was then done, uh, and they became the focus of our 2011 exhibition, Reframing Disability. Uh, the significance of the prints and the appropriateness of them to be displayed at the RCP um, was apparent, and we uh, decided that any exhibition that we did about them shouldn't just be a display of the prints, but that we needed to get contemporary responses to the prints and uh, get insights from disabled people today. So the lecture today was going to touch on the project, but also go into some depth about some of the individual prints that we uh, utilised for the exhibition. I think there are around 30 prints in total that became the main features of the exhibition. But first, some context. Um, in early 2010, you might recognise this um, image. Um, the media published photos depicting the world's tallest man at the time, Sultan Kosan of Turkey, standing next to the world's shortest man, He Pingping from China. The difference in their heights makes the smaller man look considerably smaller and the taller man considerably taller when they're positioned next to each other. And this method has been used for centuries to accentuate size at both ends of the spectrum. And the fact that this image garnered so much media interest really shows that the world um, still has a real interest in people with um, unusual bodies um, and it has long been part of our culture. And there's a lot of criticism um, now about the depiction of disabled people in the modern media, with claims that images are frequently limited to the sentimental or the pathological, um, or that they're really sensationalised, um, or most pressing that disabled people are not represented at all, um, despite the fact there are more than 10 million people in the UK um, living with a limiting long-term illness, impairment or disability. Just this week, um, I'm sure many of you have heard about um, the debate that's uh, surrounding this film, Me Before You, um, which has included a lot of talk um, from disability charities about the representation in the film of disability um, and choosing to end your life. Now, there are efforts to um, improve uh, this marginalised view of disabled people, but largely disabled people are poorly represented in today's art and mass media. The collection of portraits of disabled people held at the RCP can be used to explore how they were seen and understood historically. There are many questions posed by the, uh, by the images, and we certainly don't have all the answers today, but um, we can perhaps uh, highlight some of the questions that might come out of it. And they are, who were the focus of the images? What were the audience that the images were drawn and sketched for? Where did they appear? And did people in other time periods look at disability differently? Was this more likely to marginalise people as the subjects of the prints? And finally, what resonance does this have for disabled people today? Between the 17th and 19th century, ideas about disability changed. Prior to those dates, uh, there was quite a common belief that there was a correlation between disability and sin, um, and also if you, uh, shock can, could, implement, um, could cause disability. So there are a lot of strange ideas. Um, there was a connection between abnormalities of the body and the mind in some people's uh, understanding. They believe that that might have been caused by, a, uh, if you have a mental health problem, it's because of disabilities of the body. By the late 17th century, however, these notions were shifting, and you get a lot more uh, interest from the medical profession, and that's when they start to categorise uh, different disabilities. 
In the 19th century, partly because of industrialization, disabled people would then begin to be uh, excluded from new methods of production. If you've got machinery, it isn't easy for it to be adapted, uh, and uh, a lot of people became removed from more mainstream society in which they may have been able to uh, play a living. So people with unusual bodies were then likely to be compelled to exhibit in order to earn a living. Images of uh, before and after treatment were popular in the 20th century and largely, largely do not apply to the RCP's print collection, although we do have an example in here. And our prints show these subjects within a social context rather than focusing on the medical condition. And we're now going to take you through some of the prints themselves. This is, oh, this is Magdalena Rudolph's. And she was born um, in 1612 in Stockholm. And in this portrait, she's 39 years old and is shown performing tasks of varying complexity with her feet. She is well-dressed in Scandinavian Protestant style with lace-edged garments, including a deep collar, cap and apron, which is decorative rather than functional. Now, in the central portrait, she's shown firing a pistol, and we might consider why this particular image was chosen as the central image of the print. Perhaps it was considered to be the most complex of her many abilities, or maybe it was to issue a warning. I may have a disability, but don't mess with me. The small images in the print depict several activities, unlocking a chest with a key, um, threading a needle, stitching, embroidery, cutting a knife, wrapping up her child and breastfeeding her child. And this would have satisfied the curiosity um, of viewers as to her ability to perform the role of mother and also sexual partner. It's not known whether Magdalena exhibited um, or whether her abilities made her so famous that she was simply sought out and recorded by the artist Wolfgang Killian. It's difficult to say if this print is self-defining or if it's exploitative. Uh, this boy is known as heterodelph boy or, du or duplex or double body child. And the depiction shows the boy with an extra torso and two extra legs attached to him. He was born in 1857 and was the ninth child of a Lancashire family. Sadly, his parents wished to remain anonymous, so we don't know any more about his origins in terms of name. And his parents gave him to Dr. Joseph Kahn, who ran an anatomical and pathological museum at 4 Coventry Street in London. Having a disabled child was historically often considered a punishment for parental sins. The families could be avoided by their communities, and the child's inability to work would have been a further financial burden for families. Dr. Kahn opened his controversial museum in 1851, and it became the most visited public museum of anatomy at the time. Public interest in anatomy had been heightened following the Burke and Hare scandal in Edinburgh, who committed murders, of course, for dissection. Uh, the boy here was exhibited three times daily, at noon, two, and four o'clock, and viewing him was relatively expensive, with a charge of two shillings and sixpence. The audience would also as well as the members of the public, have included medical practitioners who were intrigued by his appearance. Dr. Kahn's museum was eventually closed in 1873 after he was successfully prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act of 1857. And many of the 500 exhibits, including models showing the, destru the destructive effects of uh, syphilis, were destroyed. And sadly, it's not known what happened to this boy or how long he would have lived. 
Now, we don't know the real name um, of this woman, but she was known locally as Blind Granny, and this is the title of the print. Uh, she lived in London around the turn of the 18th century. And in this print, she is shown wearing quite rough clothing. Her eyebrows are light or white, um, implying her granny status, and her tongue protrudes from her parted lips. Now, Blind Granny was famous in her community for her huge tongue, uh, known medically as macroglossia, um, with which she would lick her blind eye in return for money to buy beer. And she was considered uh, a real character in her locality and was celebrated in verses of the time. One verse includes, Granny, always blithe and jolly, enjoys the pleasures of her folly. In this sense, folly is used to describe mental health issues. Uh, she was accepted by the local population as an eccentric, living within their midst, um, despite the proximity of Bethlehem Hospital um, nearby, which was an institution for people commonly known um, at the time as lunatics um, and traditionally a favourite resort for sightseers. So it's interesting that that hospital existed, but yet she was still very much part of the community. Now, she's holding a full tankard of ale, and it's recorded that once she had drunk her fill um, in the local inn, she would dance frantically uh, in the street to the amusement of the crowd until collapsing in doorways, and people would sober her up by dousing her with pails of water, and she would be followed by children who teased her. Where she lived or who looked after her is unfortunately not known, uh, but like many uh, elderly people of this time, she would probably have relied on arms or charity. This portrait of Thomas Inglefield depicts him as an artist, sat at his work table with his drawing materials around him. It is a self-portrait etched by Inglefield himself and is important as the subject plays a part in his own disability. The caption included in the portrait states, This extraordinary young man was born December 18th, 1769, at Hook, Hampshire, without arms or legs, as here delineated, occasioned, as his mother supposes, by a fright she suffered when pregnant with him. This is called maternal imagination, and it was a commonly held explanation for disability. A pregnant woman seeing a shocking or disturbing sight may give birth to a disabled child. Inglefield was actually an accomplished artist and engraver, and the caption continues. He has by industry acquired the arts of writing and drawing, holding his pencil between the stump of his left arm and his cheek, and guiding it with the muscles of his mouth. Like many people exhibiting themselves in the 18th century, Inglefield showed himself privately in rooms at 8 Chapel Street of, Oxford, of Tottenham Court Road. These prints would have been sold on the premises, and many people... Sorry, I'm behind in the clicking, sorry. These prints would have been sold on the premises, and many people, including members of the Royal Society, bought disabled people's works for their private collections. Inglefield is aged about 20 in this image, and according to the caption, and is in opposed stance, dressed in what were probably his best clothes, and we find that in a number of these images... They are dressed up very formally and smartly. This self-portrait of Inglefield as creator and artist clearly demonstrates that he's a working man, not solely in exhibit, and earning his living by writing, drawing and etching. This is John Bowby, who was born in 1774 near Kingston in Jamaica um, to slaves who already had four children. His mother apparently was so frightened when she saw him that she completely refused to breastfeed him. And it's likely that she was terrified um, of being accused of adultery with a white man because he had white patches on his skin. Plantation owners and white workers were notorious um, for violating uh, female slaves. 
Bobby had piebaldism, um, so his skin had lost uh, pigment in various patches. He was sent to Liverpool from Jamaica um, at the young age of 12, and he was christened John Primrose Richardson Bobby. At some stage, he was bought and exhibited by a showman named Clark, and he was exhibited um, at the Bartholomew Fair, um, which was famous um, for exhibiting um, individuals. Now, the image caption tells the viewer that Bobie exhibits himself um, all over England and Scotland, so he was relatively well-travelled. He came to the attention of someone called Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, um, who was a famous German naturalist who wrote about race, and he wrote extensively about John Bobie. Black people at the time were considered inferior to white people, and the presence of white skin on black people uh, created a real fear about the mixing of racial groups. Such skin conditions, however, were also considered a quirk of nature, um, and they invoked a sense of awe and fascination within the public, um, hence the title of this print, which is very small um, on, the, on the image there, The Wonderful Spotted Indian. The portrait shows Bobby around 29 years old wearing a dramatic costume, so suggesting that these were show clothes to be used when he was exhibiting. In his left hand, he's holding a medallion or a watch threaded on a ribbon. He has closely curled black hair, um, and it has a white streak running through, the entire, um, of the, running through his entire centre of his head and down onto his forehead, which is typical of piebaldism. His life appears to have turned out pretty happily, from what we can gather. Um, he gained his freedom, and he married an English woman. This is Sarah Hawkes. In 1831, the 14-year-old Sarah exhibited herself in London three years after she had received a blow to the back of her head, which had gradually caused her limbs to contract. Hawkes had been a servant in Essex, but was no longer able to earn a living, and therefore she came to London uh, to exhibit and try and make, make her way. It is unlikely that Sarah would have exhibited herself naked as she is in this print. Rather, this image is likely to have been created actually for medical readers and a medical audience. She was examined by many doctors over the years, including the surgeon Astley Cooper, who treated her with contemporary cures, which uh, I wouldn't advise now, of bleeding, applying leeches, blistering, and otherwise trying to drain off noxious humours. Hawkes had been in London a month or so when she was visited by Dr. Edward Harrison, a Lancashire-born physician. Harrison began his treatment of Sarah on 15th of November, 1831, and just over a year later, Sarah was able to walk again. In a letter to a fellow surgeon, Harrison explained that he had straightened Sarah's backbone by means of massage, splints, stretching, and lying flat. There's no uh, response from Hawkes, uh, no written uh, opinion from her on the treatment, but Harrison recorded it in great detail, and he noted, noted an increase in her appetite at one point, and she wrote that she would consume mutton chops for lunch, have tea and toast in the afternoon, and tapioca and white wine for dinner. So very healthy appetite. According to Harrison, the cause of Hawkes' contracted limbs was a dislocation of the sixth cervical vertebra, and that had caused paralysis of her limbs through damage to the spinal cord. She was later treated by a different surgeon who wrote that her deformity was returning as one of her legs had become shorter by one inch, which had been occasioned by a fall in walking. And apparently following his treatment, she was able to walk several miles again, and she was a proud, very proud of her figure. 
This is Matthew Buckinger. He was born in Germany in 1674, the youngest of nine children, and he described himself as a wonderful little man of but 29 inches high, born without hands, feet or thighs. He migrated to England in the early 18th century and uh, exhibited himself in London um, at the two Blackamoor's heads in Hoban and the corner house near Charing Cross. Admission cost one shilling for a front seat and sixpence for a back seat, um, so this would have attracted a very well-heeled audience. A man of many talents, Buckinger played musical instruments such as bagpipes and the trumpet. Uh, he performed conjuring tricks, played skittles, fired a pistol and danced a hornpipe. Um, and he was also a celebrated artist. Examples of his penmanship um, are currently in the Harleian collection uh, in the British Library. Now, the RCP holds two portraits of Buckinger um, and a notice written by himself um, in 1837, which advertised his performance, and he described it as miraculous actions as none else can do with hands and feet. Now, this self-portrait shows the 50-year-old artist seated on an embroidered and tasseled cushion. The curls of his wig interestingly, are composed of the lettering of six biblical psalms and the Lord's Prayer. And this portrait was commissioned by the publisher Isaac Herbert, uh, for which he paid Buckinger 60 guineas, uh, which is equivalent to over £3,000 today. Um, and Buckinger also sold prints to the paying public. He was married four times and had 11 children. And like many of the disabled people represented in these images, he travelled more widely um, than mo most people would have done at that time. An elegy from a Dublin writer reveals the affection in which Buckinger was uh, held in his lifetime. Poor Buckinger is dead and gone, a lifeless trunk who was a living one. Trunk, did I say, wherein all virtues met? I should have called him a rich cabinet. John Warrenberg was born in Switzerland in 1659, and he was about two foot seven inches in height and said to be as stout and strong as a full-grown man. It is not known whether he exhibited himself in Europe, but he arrived in London around 1688 when this portrait was created. He was received at the court of James II in Whitehall, where he met and perhaps entertained the king and members of the royal family. Later that year, James II was deposed and replaced by his nephew, William of Orange, who ruled jointly with James's daughter, Mary. Warrenberg's clothing depicts the ornate fashion favored by the Catholic James II, whereas another portrait in the Welcome Library shows a more somber suited gentleman in the dress favoured by the Protestant king. This suggests that entertainers and those who put themselves up for public exhibit found it politically advantageous to adopt the court fashions of the day. In the 17th century, it was the court that set the fashion agenda for the nation, and Warrenberg wears a sword and leans on a walking stick in this uh, image. Both were fashion accessories, although in this case, his cane may also have been more than a prop and could have been a walking aid for a man whose stride was reduced compared with taller adults. Warrenberg was well-educated, multilingual, and sang for audiences who came to see him in his rooms at the Plume of Feathers pub, uh, which is still uh, present in Greenwich today. He exhibited himself there in 1691. In 1695, this dapper, talented man came to an untimely end at the age of just 36 when landing at the port of Rotterdam in Holland. As he was too small to jump from the ship to the quay, he was always carried in, uh, to safety in a box, and sadly, on one occasion, the plank to the quay broke and Warrenberg uh, was dropped and drowned while still in the box.
Wybrand Lokes was born um, in the Netherlands in 1730 and he was apprenticed to a watchmaker in Amsterdam and became a skillful jeweller. Um, he established his own business in Rotterdam. Now, when this didn't uh, go so well for a few years, he also began exhibiting himself at fairs um, to support his family and earn a greater income. Um, at a height of 25 and a half inches, Lokes was one of the smallest men ever to exhibit. Now, this engraving depicts um, a 60-year-old uh, Lokes towards the end of his life wearing a three-piece suit with a cravat, stockings, and buckled shoes. His apparel would have been made for him, um, but this was the norm in the 18th century um, as high street shops were still uh, a complete novelty um, and most working class and lower middle class households made their own clothing. He's accompanied by his neatly dressed wife, um, whose only jewellery consists of a, a bead necklace and earrings, uh, which he may have made himself. Um, and despite his age, um, when he was exhibiting, um, he was reported to be very strong, very active, um, would stand on his head for the audience, uh, spring from the floor into a chair. And the image caption states that Lokes had three children by his wife and that they were all live born and christened. Um, and this told readers that the offspring were vigorous um, because in 1790, one in five babies um, died within the first year of their life. Now, this image appeared in Wonderful magazine, um, and magazines of this sort um, were expensive for ordinary people, many of whom were illiterate anyway. Um, but pictures could have been torn out um, and stuck up in coffee shops and taverns or advertising sheets. Um, now, Lokes made a very good living um, out on the exhibition circuit, um, and he returned um, to Holland, where he died uh, quite peacefully in 1800. Uh, in addition to the, the prints that were part of Reframing Disability, we included one portrait, uh, oil portrait, that is part of the collections there at the RCP, and that's of a man we believe to be Richard Gibson. It hasn't been categorically uh, identified as him, but uh, the assumption is that it is Gibson himself. Gibson was uh, a famous miniaturist in his day and was employed by wealthy family where his future wife, Anne, was working. And both Gibson and his wife were of short stature. Gibson height was three feet, 10 inches. He moved in exalted circles and became wealthy and eminent and signed his paintings RG and DG for dwarf Gibson. He was associated with the courts of Charles I and Charles II and later Charles, um, James II, who appointed him drawing master to his daughters. When uh, James's daughter married William of Orange, the Gibsons accompanied her to The Hague, returning to London when she and her husband succeeded to the British throne. In this oil portrait of Gibson, painted in the 19th century by an anonymous artist, he is depicted asleep in a red and gold painted chair. He's wearing a brown suit and cloak. His button jacket has black, perhaps velvet, turned cuffs and a white shirt with collar and long full sleeves peek out from the jacket. A portrait of Gibson by Sir Peter Lilly at the National Portrait Gallery also shows him wearing a brown suit and white shirt, although in that painting the suit appears to be of satin. In general, a 19th century painting is somewhat crudely executed compared with the lily and shows Gibson to have a very pronounced snub nose and a large ungainly head, features that are not reproduced in any other likeness of him. Richard and Anne had five children, of whom at least three became miniaturists themselves. And when Gibson died, they appear to have been living with their daughter in Covent Garden. 
James Porro was born in Genoa um, in 80, uh, 1686 and he exhibited in London as well. Um, and he actually attracted the attention of Sir Hans Sloane, um, founder of the British Museum, who had Porro's portrait painted. Now, in this image, we can see a very fashionably dressed um, and bewigged Porro, um, who's staring a bit abstractedly uh, into the distance while exposing his twin, um, who was baptised Matthew. The twin is uh, fixed to Porro's abdomen and has some facial features, including protruding teeth. Now, Matthew, uh, the twin's hair has been plaited and dressed with bows. These may be false plaits, but the fact that both the teeth and the hair have grown um, suggests that it is Matthew's real hair. Matthew was said to possess an independent animated nature to himself and had therefore been baptised um, and given the status of a separate individual. Now, the word parasitic um, for this kind of twin is a modern term uh, and wouldn't have been used um, in the 17th or the 18th century. Now, we can consider when looking at this print um, what would have been going through James's mind when he posed for this picture. Uh, is this the pose he typically assumed uh, when he was confronted with a gawping audience? Also born in Genoa just a few years earlier were the Colorado brothers who shared a similar condition. Lazarus would hang a cloak from his shoulders to shield Johannes when not performing, which allowed for a dramatic reveal on stage. Lazarus often recounted a tale of murdering a man who had taunted him and subsequently evading execution by claiming that the innocent Johannes would also die. The brothers' biblical names would have had a strong resonance with the 17th century audience, teaching a moral lesson of perseverance. Despite the stress to his own body, Lazarus is said to have lived a normal lifespan and fathered several children. So, are the prints exploitative? The elderly lady known as Blind Granny, although part of her community, was mocked and treated as a figure of fun. This is Thomas Hills Everett, who was unusually large as a baby, and he was exhibited so continuously in a cramped, polluted environment that this is uh, highly likely to have been a strong contributing factor uh, to his death at less than two years old. And it's impossible to tell, um, just from looking at the portraits, how the subjects felt. We've got little first-hand evidence uh, from their own mouths, are these portraits an attempt to define themselves in ways that they wanted to be seen? Or are they further examples of human curiosity into the unusual and another attempt to gawp and marvel? The self-portraits are at least slightly easier to interpret with the artists um, taking control over their image um, and demonstrating their talent at the same time. But these prints show a very select group of individuals and we can only imagine what the lives of other disabled people not chosen to exhibit or promote themselves would have been like. We do know that many would have been excluded from mainstream work and forced to beg. Now, there is an element of exploitation within these images, but there are also positive elements. Certainly, for some of the disabled people represented, they were more well-travelled than other people were at the time. Many had royal connections, uh, some simply through visiting royal courts and exhibiting, but others like Richard Gibson, who worked for the royal household as an artist and teacher. Royal patronage could be an excellent route to, to riches and fame. Some of the individuals in the collection uh, were celebrated artists in their own time and remain so today. And some were very successful at exhibiting, um, which would have afforded them a satisfactory level of income, um, certainly better than many other poor people of the period. It was not always considered demeaning. The exhibition market was international and very lucrative. 
And getting rich uh, from exhibiting is a bit of an interesting juxtaposition to today, uh, where we see things like disability benefits being completely slashed. Um, of course, there were differences and nuances, just like today. Um, some people were very much in control of their exhibiting, um, such as Chang and Eng Bunker, um, who fired their manager when they turned 21 and they controlled their own career. Um, others, particularly young people, were often at the mercy of somebody else um, and lived uh, sometimes limited and depressing lives. Disabilities could also be temporary, like today. Um, Thomas Everett, um, his, his career was likely to have been short duration because he, he may well have grown out of his unusually large body as a baby, um, but his parents seized a window of opportunity to earn some money, uh, and unfortunately we, we just don't know if he would have survived otherwise. Disabled people uh, were not just shunted into exhibitions and asylums like we might have thought. Um, many lived very actively within their local communities, got married and had children. Not everyone was, was carted off to Bethlehem. And the other thing to point out um, is that within these select prints, they really focus on visible disabilities. We really, there's, there's nothing really that's looking at invisible disabilities in any of these depictions. So what can the images tell us? The, uh, the portraits are predominantly of men, although there are a few notable depictions of women. Unlike the male portraits, these women are not engaged in tasks or activities and therefore will be less likely to be perceived as workers as well as exhibitors. The exception, of course, is Magdalena Rudolphs, who is performing a whole range of household tasks. And the image emphasizes women's responsibility for domestic duties, but it also shows that a disabled woman is able to take on that role we do not know, however, how much control she had over her own representation. Something the images can't tell us is what happened after the sitters died. Often that's when whatever control they had over their own lives disappeared. This is Sarah Bartman. She exhibited and, while alive, refused to exhibit naked to keep her dignity, even though scientists were clamouring to see her body. When she died, she was dissected without her previous consent. And people with unusual bodies were also at risk of their remains being displayed after their death. In particular, very tall people feared that the skeletons would be uh, placed on display as their unusualness was within their very bones, which did not decay. And finally, one thing we can tell from the prints is that many of the people in the images were trying to control they were, the way they were represented, in their clothing, their pose, and their location. Similarly, disabled activists today strive for disabled people to control their own representations. As we mentioned at the start, uh, the prints were a focus of our 2011 exhibition, Reframing Disability, which was held at the RCP. And we really felt the fear at the start of the project um, of creating a fence, um, but particularly uh, a fear of sensationalising the prints. What if exhibiting them um, inadvertently encouraged audiences to stare uh, in the same way that was reminiscent um, of what was called in the 19th century a freak show? Um, in showing them now, are we simply going to continue this exploitation centuries later? So what we thought was really imperative was the research on the individuals themselves um, and allowing us to display them in an unsensationalized way. And that was the first element of the project that was completed. Um, we got an MLA grant of £4,000 um, to hire two expert um, academics, Dr. Julie Anderson and Dr. Carol Reeves, um, who were two historians of medicine and disability um, 
And they both became important project partners um, and wrote essays uh, for us, um, helped with the catalogue as well as the exhibition text. Now, one of the central aims um, of the project was to challenge negative stereotypes of disabled people. And in order to do this, uh, we needed to explore and understand why the prints were both made um, to get an accurate sense of social and cultural attitudes of the time and also understand the the human stories um, behind the images. We needed to uncover uh, as far as possible the lives of the individuals themselves to allow them to be seen as the people they were, uh, parents, husbands, wives, artists, professionals, and not purely defined and viewed in terms of their disability. So to put it simply, once you know that Matthew Buckinger had four marriages and 11 children and his artwork is in the British Museum, do you start to view the print differently? And importantly, we weren't trying uh, to undertake any form of retrospective diagnosis um, or focus um, on the treatments or cures um, that many of the individuals might have been offered or given, um, unless it was really central to the story of the print, like in the case of Sarah Hawkes. Um, Now, many of the senior physicians at the RCP assumed this would be the natural approach that we would take. Uh, The fact that we're a medical institution made this uh, a lot more daunting uh, rather than less daunting. Um, The medicalization of disability uh, is still a really uh, contentious area. Uh, We work with focus groups of disabled people and many of our participants described negative and damaging encounters with medical professionals throughout their lives. Here's a quotation from Penny Pepper, one of the project participants. On a weekly basis, I come up against an assumption from the medical profession of how I am as a disabled person. That has no bearing on how I actually live my life. When I meet a new doctor, they assume that I do not work without even questioning me can't even rely on access to toilets in hospital, so how can I possibly expect your average doctor to look beyond the heavy labelling my wheelchair still carries? We included disabled participants in the project and their voices and images within the exhibition, exhibition catalogue and the publicity material. And we did this in order to reduce the cultural invisibility of disabled people in traditional museum displays. We wanted to create an opportunity for disabled people to comment and curate themselves and we wanted to encourage audiences to rethink attitudes towards disability and question what had been taken for granted stereotypes and actively engage with contemporary disability-related issues. In terms of what next, we've been working hard to ensure that the legacy of the project continues. We've partnered with the University of Leicester and have been involved in the project which ultimately became actor and artist Matt Fraser's Cabinet of Curiosity performance which was also held here. Matt first performed his show at the RCP and was inspired by the prints of reframing disability in the stories that he told around the institution. The exhibition is now a touring one and we've lent it to various institutions around the UK and Ireland. And here it is in December 2013 at the Houses of Parliament. Following on from that, we've now part of uh, Exceptional and Extraordinary, another project that these surgeons are also uh, involved in. And we're looking forward to putting on artist performances later in the month, next week actually. Tickets still available, both venues. Um, And finally, we've also looked more closely at how we can uh, include representations of disability within our museum, but not standing alone, but generally as part of our normal displays. Uh, The painting on uh, on the slide here is of Joshua Reynolds, uh, shows Joshua Reynolds in the foreground, and he's carrying a near trumpet. And we included that in the display about hearing loss. 
We've also curated a small display on multiple sclerosis. But we're trying to uh, find ways that we can incorporate stories of disability within the museum collections generally. We've got over 230 oil portraits of doctors, and some of those will have had disabilities. They would have had hidden disabilities, such as hearing loss or visual impairments, and we want to try and bring some of these stories out rather than having standalone boxes with a disabled person's life told in that. We want it to be integral, and that's an ongoing piece of work. So we're happy to take any questions about the, any of this. If you have any. Yes. Me. Yes, sure. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. It's still possible to earn money with some kind of disability <coughs> in this country now. To earn money. It's all about in history. Mm. To be displayed, or display yourself, to earn some money. Is there anywhere in this country where it can be done and it's legal? Hopefully not. I don't believe so. Um, I don't know if you're aware of. We talked about Matt Fraser, and there was a picture of Matt Fraser. And he's gone over to America and he's starring in a big show over there, I'm not sure if it's HBO, which is looking at old um, freak shows, isn't it? And he's involved in that. But uh, I don't think any of those, thankfully, exist today over here. I yes, okay. <laughs> Anyone? Yeah. Yes, gentlemen? Do we know how these people's children got out? We, do, we, we don't. Um, a lot of what we've got um, is purely based on, on the print itself and what we can learn from the caption. Um, we know uh, Richard Gibson's children became miniaturists and were successful in their own right as well. They, fo they followed their father in that artistic route. Um, but as far as I'm aware from the research that was conducted, um, we don't know a lot, um, if at all, um, about the children. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah, I think it, it's one of the sad things and one of the, the good things, positive things about the project was that we found out an awful lot more about the subjects and the, the people in the images. But digging beyond their life was really difficult. I mean, we couldn't find the names of some of the people, but where we could, we really did get a good biographical idea of their life. But beyond that, the legacy of their family, we couldn't find out. It's, it was a big project, but it couldn't dig any further than that. But it's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yes, we'll move that. Yeah. And uh, did you, um, well, we, we actually included um, some disabled doctors within the exhibition as well, and they were part, part of the, um, the group. So we, had, we tried to have all elements. Um, I don't know, we, we haven't got any empirical evidence on attitudes changing because of the exhibition. But I think it certainly we know that it, it opened a lot of eyes for our fellows and members who, um, and because we, we gave a lot of emphasis on the, the social model of disability, which obviously from a medical institution, it was quite a, an interesting fit and in trying to open them up to uh, understanding the social model rather than purely medical. And the Sarah Hawkes one uh, image there of her being treated and cured and then her... Um, uh, injury coming back again, you know. Um, that was an interesting one. And the, the participants in the focus groups were very interesting in talking about their experiences. And some had very positive um, stories of 
the medical intervention that they had, and others were very resentful because um, there's a famous quote from one of the participants called Jamie Bedard who said, I ain't broke, don't try and fix me. And yet, the, and a lot of people felt that medics were too busy just not seeing beyond the obvious um, disability of someone's in a wheelchair, as Penny was saying, that's all that I'm seen as. Whereas they were saying, they live a full life, it's how I am disabled by access, etc., etc. So hopefully some of the doctors who saw the exhibition will have gone away and had a bit more of a think about perhaps they, their attitudes to uh, disability. Yeah. Do you want to mention that? The... Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, that um, that display was curated um, by some of our placement students. Um, we have some diaries in our archive collection um, of Augustus Deste, um, who had uh, who had multiple sclerosis. Um, he was the first known um, case um, that was diagnosed, um, and we wanted to um, exhibit these diaries um, of of his um, and, and and throw a bit of focus on them. Um, and that display. Um, is now part of our uh, rolling displays that we bring out to two display cases in one of our most prominent areas. Um, so, so it has been regularly on display. Um, and we've also done other slightly smaller displays as well. Um, we're reluctant to kind of bring out the reframing prints just to stand alone, just to say we're doing something. Um, so we, we, we wanted a much more kind of holistic approach built into our programming, which has definitely been one of the, the legacy aspects of this project, really. Yes. Yes. Um, I saw Faith Field recently. I had no problems with following films because they have the subtitles in English. And in that Faith Field, there's this wonderful um, story about a family who are all deaf except for one of the girls who sang beautifully. Mm. And it, the story went on all the rest of it. And all the family who were deaf were played by hearing actors. Now, mm. that is a bad way of showing up the capability of deaf people. They can't be deaf roles that they no, absolutely. Um, and it does tend to be, I think, um, on television programmes and films, often a, a token gesture sometimes rather than, again, a more holistic approach um, to, to representing disabled people in films and TV. Yes. It's interesting how times have changed. In 1937, when I was an 11-year-old schoolboy, yeah. Although, um, having said that, I've, I've certainly been to fairgrounds and you get taken into some kind of ghostly curiosity thing. Um, and so you might not have, you know, the bearded lady there, but you've certainly still got images and representations. Um, so I would say that actually that does still happen today, but just in a bit more of a diluted and perhaps less obvious way. Yes. Well, um, still with Exceptional and Extraordinary, so Peter mentioned that project um, which we're working on. So we're formal partners with the University of Leicester now, um, which uh, so are the Royal College of Surgeons and also several um, medical institutions around the UK. And together uh, we work on artist performances. Um, 
So, for example, next week we've got one um, with Julie McNamara and David Heavy who are coming um, to perform. Um, and these shows uh, focus on the representation um, of disabled people, disabled issues um, through the medium of films, dancing, performances and things like that. Um, and that's great for us as a way to get our members and our fellows involved um, as well and to come and see the performances. Um, and actually, Matt Fraser... Um, came and spoke at our Museums Association conference a couple of years ago. Um, he performed Cabinets of Curiosity um, and he basically submitted a call to arms to all the museums in the audience and said, if you just go back to your collections and all you do is just change one thing about how you're representing disabled people or go into your collections and just find one object to tell a story in a different way, please, please do it. Um, and there was all the museums you know, across the UK that's there. Um, and since then, um, I've certainly noticed a, a bit of a change. Um, certainly on Twitter and other social media that we're engaged with, certain projects that are going on, a bit more awareness. Um, as we've said, we, we don't just want to, to get out the prints every once in a while. We, we want a, a much more holistic approach. Um, and we don't just want to, you know, draw attention to... Um, you know Joshua Reynolds and say in a caption this is Joshua Reynolds he's got an ear trumpet you know he he, he you know was deaf um we, we want to do it in a way that's not kind of token doing it piecemeal but but certainly in a more holistic way so that's just something that we generally work on we also uh, still uh, lend out reframing disability as an exhibition um so that is available for for people to hire um it's a very small pop-up exhibition um so it's easier for uh smaller institutions who maybe don't have a museum as such to borrow it and that's a great way of getting the message out um to local communities as well <laughs> it's all right <laughs> It's a, it's a good topic. <laughs> I'll probably hand over to Peter for that one because he was there at the time. <laughs> Sorry, could you just repeat that? Yes. Well, we are still working with he, um, the project partners for that. Well, the Welcome, who, fund, who did, a bit, did a big part of the funding, but also Shape Arts, who are an organisation up in Camden. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So a lot of crackle. Shape Arts are a disability-led arts organisation. And Tony Heaton there, who is the uh, CEO of the organisation, has worked with us um, ever since reframing on a number of issues, including accessibility at our venue, etc. Um, and he was the one who collated those focus groups a lot of the members of the focus groups, actually, when we, someone else was asking, um, are actually in the arts. They're actors and uh, performers as well. Um, so he is still very much a big partner with us, and it's, uh, he's a very helpful person for us to be um, t discussing how we do go forward. At the moment, University of Leicester have been driving the projects, but we are also looking um, actively at trying to improve the accessibility as Beth mentioned, we're in a, a 1964, it was opened, a modernist building. It's grade one listed, it's a masterpiece, but the accessibility of it is very problematic. And Beth asked if any of you have been there and do suggest you come, but we're very conscious that we have a lot of accessibility issues. So I did a, an audit uh, at the end of last summer with Tony, and we have a whole report on where we need to try and improve. So in that side of it, we're, we're working very hard to try and overcome a lot of um, barriers that we know are in place. And as for the exhibits and events, at the moment we've got this, which is a very large scale event and hopefully ongoing, we will use Tony and um, his contacts to try and develop further. 
I think uh, typically when, when focus groups um, are worked with on these kinds of projects, people are very happy to, to take part, um, but it tends to be with anyone who's kind of leading the focus group that you tend to maintain a, a relationship with afterwards. Um, some people in the focus groups, you know, have got their own lives and things that they want to be getting on with. So actually, although some of them are still the artists who are going to be performing in the performances that I mentioned, so we're still in touch in that way, um, it tends to be in the more structured, formal partnership way that you can actually keep the legacy um, sustained and going. Um, otherwise, it becomes a bit more kind of frag fragmented and maybe a bit more piecemeal and you maybe don't get the impact um, that you might get if it's going through um, slightly more formal channels of someone take, like Tony, um, who, who, who was one of the focus group participants himself. Okay. Um, well, but we can we can hand over to Haley actually then. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, well. Well. First of all, I will answer that question in a minute. But I'd just like to thank um, Beth and Peter, who have very kindly stepped in for Emma, who was unable to deliver this lecture, and have truly given us an excellent insight into the project, um, the work that was done, its outcomes, and indeed its future and legacy. So, a small round of applause. Um, so, in terms of this, like, see, the exceptional, extraordinary project, um, and subtitled Unruly Bodies, is running across uh, multiple venues, including ourselves, the Royal College of Physicians, uh, the Science Museum, the Thackeray Museum in Leeds, um, and Edinburgh as well. Yes, in Edinburgh. So it's quite wide-reaching geographically. Um, it's working with four artists: um, David Heavey, um, Julie McNamara, Francesca Martinez, and uh, the dance group Deaf Men Dancing. And um, each of these venues is having a different number of performances. Some of us are doing double bills; others are just hosting a couple of individual performances. Um, in terms of our performances, uh, we've got Julie McNamara and David Heavey performing here, well, here, not performing, seems wrong, um, here tomorrow night. I've actually left some flyers at the back uh, near where the sign-in book is, so please do pick them up if you're interested. Uh, there's also information on our website, um, the Hunterian Museum website, and there's a link through from that website both to online booking for the performances are here, um, and if you go further down the page, you'll find a PDF uh, sheet, uh, which you can download, which has information about performances at all of the other venues and how you can book for those performances. So if you can't make performances here, you can make performances at the Royal College of Physicians or at the Science Museum, who I believe are doing their performances as part of their uh, Wednesday Lates this month. Uh, I think, which usually happen towards the end of the month. So there are multiple, it's the same performances, but taking place in multiple venues. So we hope that you'll look at our website, um, look at the websites at the other organisations, Google Exceptional Extraordinary, Unruly Bodies, you can find information on Twitter and Facebook. Um, but we are aware there are some slight issues in some of the promotion that's been done. So it's not entirely clear how to find out about all of the different venues. For those of you who use Stage Text regularly, you'll know that Stage Text also advertise anything they're involved with, and our Stage Texts are delivering speech to text at the majority of these performances. So you can find information on the Stage Text website as well. 
and I hope that slightly long diversion clarifies some of that. Um, but yet again, thank you all for coming today. I hope that you've um, enjoyed today's lecture. As ever, we'd ask you to give your feedback, and there are evaluation forms on the chair. If you don't have one on your chair in particular, you might find them on some of the empty chairs at the back of the room. Um, if you're not on our emailing list and you'd like to be, do um, email us and join it, and that way you'll get heads up on our future events. You can also pick up brochures when they're printed and available in the museum. So thank you all very much for coming. Oh, I should also say that um, we have our own portrait of Chang and Eng, and very much in the spirit of them as independent gentlemen who controlled their own lives, they're shown without any sort of uh, manager with them, and you can find that in the back right-hand corner of the museum. <laughs>